Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Doctors and Dollars podcast, where we discuss health insights and wealth secrets. I'm your host, Nate Cranell, joined today by Dr. Brian Gantworker. Dr. Gantworker is a board-certified neurosurgeon specializing in the treatment of brain tumors, as well as degenerative diseases and injuries of the spinal cord. A Chicago native, Dr. Gantworker earned a degree in psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He went on to receive his medical degree from Rush Medical College in Chicago, where he focused on peripheral nerve regeneration research. At his practice, the Craniospinal Center of Los Angeles in Santa Monica, California, patients benefit from his extensive experience treating complex brain and spine problems with minimally invasive techniques and traditional surgery. Welcome to the Doctors and Dollars podcast, Dr. G. Nate, I appreciate it. You are the man. Thanks for having me. I hope that bio was was good. I wrote that this morning just for you. Not bad. Not bad. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, as from one Midwestern to the other, uh, I'm obviously, uh, I'm very honored, uh, slightly embarrassed, and uh, of course, very honored to be here and, and trying to be as modest as I possibly can be. But thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, us Midwesterners, that's kind of our middle name is modesty. So that's that's totally fine. Yeah. Self, Self-deprecation is a real disease. <laughs> <laughs> not just our humor <laughs> right exactly. you bet hey yeah. so great great segue uh you grew up in the the multiple weather seasons of chicago i'm obviously here in iowa we're pretty much neighbors uh you oh, made your way seasons. over to the yeah first yeah. season sometimes on the same day as they say exactly you made your way then over to the dry heat right of, of phoenix uh well, and the ohio uh ohio first so cleveland for seven years that's right that's right yeah and then, um, so beautiful, sunny Cleveland, Ohio, which actually is a great town for foodies. If you if you if you like to eat, uh, and I certainly do, you definitely can do a lot worse in Cleveland. Uh, Michael Simon got a start there, um, and uh, you know we definitely did very well there. And some great great people in Ohio still maintain contact. And then, yeah, we went to Phoenix, um, where, which is I call it Chicago West because there's so many people who live who make absolutely. The, uh, my cousins are there, several sets of cousins, actually. And uh, they have a bunch of Chicago restaurants, so you never feel like you left. Sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to walk around, like, let's say, Scottsdale and not see multiple, like, Big Ten football shirts on. Oh, like, every, exactly. everybody is just from the Midwest down there. You'll see a lot of Hawkeye. You'll see a lot of Illini fans, a lot of Hawkeye fans, for sure. Yep. Uh, Michigan people are always everywhere. And yep. then, of course, the Ohio State University. So it is nice because you feel like you got representation even out west. So and they're a little bit jealous. A bunch of their teams are joining the the Big Ten now. I, I know USC and UCLA uh, are Absolutely. joining the Big Ten, which is insane. But uh, here we are, 2023. The Big Ten is now including, you know, Pac-12 teams. Who knew? Which is wild because I believe the, the Pac-12s... Uh like their slogan is like the conference of champions and they, they just went from 12 teams down to two. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. I, I think those last two teams, I think it's what Washington state and Oregon state, uh, right. they're going to have to go somewhere else. I don't, I don't see smaller like mountain West teams jumping to the PAC 12 and revitalizing that conference. I don't think that'll move over. I mean, for if something crazy could happen, like they could join the sec, which would be <laughs> But, you know, crazier things have happened. I mean, that would be really interesting to have that conference add a couple West Coast teams because uh, that's a very, very competitive, as you know, super competitive conference. And those football mm-hmm. games are super hard won. I mean, you got Auburn, you got Georgia, Georgia Tech, 
Uh, it's crazy football. North Carolina, uh, you, you talk Florida, Florida State. You know, mm-hmm. That's a really competitive conference. But it'd be it'd be interesting to have work in state of Washington State there. Who do? That's definitely mm-hmm. cultural. That's for sure. It's crazy. And and for a guy like you who's out in, in Santa Monica, out on the West Coast, what does that mean for you watching? Let's say uh, you're a fan of UC. I don't know if you're a fan of UCLA, but let's say UCLA now is playing uh, Rutgers in the yeah. Big Ten. Uh, you yes. got an East Coast game. I mean, you're watching college football at 8 a.m. I mean, it's a little bit nuts. I mean, what, what I do like, though, is I am a, an Illinois fan still. And I, I'm actually a Northwestern yeah. fan as well because I've got family who went there. A uh, couple sets of family, actually. And, um, you know, getting up at 8 or, or getting a, a live stream updates on my ESPN app on my phone. I actually really like it. I mean, getting up first thing in the, on a Saturday, being able to catch up with the scores and, you know, listening to the game in the background. I mean, it brings it back to when I was, with, you know, I lived in at home with my parents. You know, my father was a huge, huge football fan and uh, you know, always be a loyal. I'm a Bears fan, you know, Bulls, Cubs all the way. Sure. And that, yep. that's never going to change. Uh, I actually went to a Dodgers game recently. Really good seats. They're playing the Giants. And I was re- rooting for the Dodgers, obviously. But, uh, you know, my my loyalties will always lie in, in Chicago. There's no question. So that's never that's awesome. Yeah. A true Chicago fan. I love yeah. that. Born and bred awesome. DNA. Never say die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never say die. Love that. Yeah, die? I actually. Uh, yeah. They, it's never say never, never. Yeah. There's there's all those different. Who knows? Yeah. We can blend them all together. Right. Yeah. I remember I spent um, about a year in a previous career. I got moved down to Chandler, Arizona mm-hmm. uh, for a short time. So I lived in Chandler for about a year. And I remember while we were there. Uh, the Super Bowl, so it had been 2016, I believe. The Super Bowl was out on the East Coast somewhere. I think it was Miami. And I just remember like middle of the hour, it was like one, two o'clock in the afternoon and I'm watching the Super Bowl and it was just a weird feeling. It's disorient. Uh, it's, it's like, wait, should it be getting dark? And like, I'm usually cooking, you know, buffalo wings and and all the, the awesome appetizers. That's usually a supper. And I'm like, now it feels like we're just having late lunch. Exactly. It's like watching the, if you watch the Grammys live out here, it's like happening in the middle of the daytime. And it's, 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 it's wild, even though it's being filmed there, it's being really broadcast for the, the East coast people. So, you know, mm-hmm. time we find out about anything, it's already been on the news and stuff, you know, for several hours and especially like mm-hmm. the stock market too. If you follow the market, um, you know, it opens at basically 6am, 6am here. So mm-hmm. you got to be up and, you know, if you got to be checking your funds and, and checking your, you know, Fidelity, your TD Ameritrade account or Schwab account. And you, you know, if you're into that, if that's how you support yourself, um, not many physicians do, but some, some definitely are dabblers. Uh, you know, it's like being on the overseas, you might as well be in the overseas market because you got to be up and, you know, your brain's got to be screwed on straight and you got to be good to go. So yeah, be on the West coast. The, the weather's great, but unfortunately you're behind the eight ball everything happening out east including football and financials which to me in my mind just being in the midwest it's kind of all centered as far as time goes like why if, if everything's happening on the west coast in my mind that's where all the tv shows that are you know prime time shows you know all that's happening on the west coast so like why isn't the west coast kind of the driver of all that and it's like you know the east coast people have to just watch everything late i think you know we, we have like we definitely have the market corner in terms of um entertainment production and, and other live sure you know, broadcast, but we do, we do kind of have to live by essentially the dictations of the East coast because, you know, the, the, the demands of like an 8 a.m. broad, 8 p.m. broadcast there is going to be 5 p.m. here. So, um, you know, 
we do kind of live and die still by the East Coast. It's interesting, um, especially I think a lot of it's driven by proximity to, you know, European markets and uh, the East Coast uh, demand, because a lot of people, they use, you know, TV as their escape. And so that's what yeah. TV is, you know, to a lot of people, either live or, or canned. Um, and so they're they're going to, you know, accommodate to their to their market here. And it's actually, it's good because if something comes on at eight o'clock here, it's going to be 11 PM by you guys. You're ready to pretend yeah. by you guys. You're ready to go to bed. Shoot. So that's funny. Yeah. Well, and, and realistically, like, um, let's say you're walking around Santa Monica, like people in Southern California are just outside more often. Right. You mentioned yeah. like TV is an escape for people. That is right. definitely true in the middle of winter in Iowa. Like you just don't go outside when it's, you know, negative 10 degrees and a foot of snow on the ground. But like no, in Southern California, like that, the idea of being, you know, healthy and, and exercise and being outside, that's got to be really relevant all the time. You, def you definitely feel like, you know, what, what would be considered normal size in, in, in the Midwest will be definitely considered big, so to speak out here. People are in extremely good shape. Um, some of my patients are in their nineties and you would swear they're in their seventies. You know, they have all their hair, salt and pepper. Um, they, mm -hmm. they play yoga, they play uh, bocce, uh, they're out there doing, you know, playing bridge competitively and they're going on hikes. I had one patient who was going on hikes about a month after surgery. She's just a beast. And she said, mm -hmm. um, so you definitely have, and we, we spent about 350 days the, out of the year out, like generally outside. So that's really nice. That's obviously why skin cancer is so prevalent out here in California. <laughs> Um, sure. especially for fair folks like me, um, the, uh, the, the trade-offs, obviously, you know, you, the cost of living is absolutely outrageous and, and markets are competitive out here in terms of real estate, like buying a house is, is a harrowing experience. Even if you're supposedly a top 10, top 5% earner. Um, so opportunities are, are, are short supply, but you definitely feel like the lifestyle, the, the being out of doors, I mean, even people can move a little further east, like you mentioned Chandler, which is mm -hmm. nice, bed, almost like a bedroom community for Phoenix. Although Phoenix hasn't gotten that crazy. I don't think they've really ever recovered from the crash of 2008, 2009, when everyone was underwater uh, sure. and places were being foreclosed on. But there are a lot of bedroom communities sort of further out uh, in a nicer uh, climate. But a lot of them, they they do suffer from price gouging and and really overvaluation of uh, the properties. So that's a little bit daunting, uh, unless you're super super wealthy, in which case you really don't care. Um, yeah. You know, most workaday people like you and I, you know, being on the West Coast is still a stretch, but it's still, you know, it's still the trade off, and and obviously it's like a big brass ring for a lot of people, but it does it does come at significant cost. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, tell me about your journey. I mean. Uh, we talked about it. you grew up in Chicago, then you made your way to Ohio. What yeah. what took you out to uh, to sunny L.A. Uh, being a neuro neurosurgeon out there? Well, um, it's it's obviously a very you know competitive metropolitan market. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of uh, people still are a lot of people out here. Ultimately, when I got married to my wife, uh, we were still in Ohio at the time. And I was planning on moving to Phoenix uh, to do my fellowship at the Barrow Institute uh, downtown. Uh, we decided towards like about halfway through the fellowship that we we're either going to move to Los Angeles or Chicago because she's from LA and yep. want to be near family. So that ultimately was the big decider um, to sort of raise our family in a multi-generational uh, environment. And so it really became very obvious that if we're, we're going to go to a, a competitive market, like a metropolitan market, like New York, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, um, 
it's going to be rough. So I, I mm-hmm. looked for a job. I found a job. Um, the job ended up lasting about a year, and then we parted ways. Uh, and then I started my own practice with my wife uh, at around that time, about a year after uh, we got to L.A., uh, you know, finished out the contract and then did everything the right way. Um, but, you know, staying here was like the big question. Are we going to stay here? Or are we going to go? Because we hadn't had a kid yet. And the kid came and my son came really when we were just essentially starting maybe about a year or two into the practice itself. So we were still able to leave. But ultimately, we set down roots. You know, we had family out here um, and it became sort of like you know, you have to have a, a trade-off, right? You, you can be itinerant, like a lot of people are. They sort of go from job to job to job. I have a colleague who just moved from Portland to Indianapolis. Um, wow. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. um, And then I have another colleague who was, um, shoot, uh, one was in LA and she moved to Georgia. So it, it's a very, you kind of have to be stubborn in a way if you're going to be in a desirable metropolitan location. You've really got to be almost to the point of, ignorance and stubborn um just to sure. like have to do whatever you have to do to stay uh and sometimes people will love the draw of uh you mentioned before the broadcast started your your friend who's in crown point um you know because major savings in terms of taxes and taxation that's really nice i mean those are huge delta right in terms of being mm-hmm. able to earn more money at even if he didn't even take a paycheck uh, a, a pay hike or uh, uh, got a bonus that money goes a lot further so mm-hmm. priorities are important. I think talking to your partner, your spouse is really important. Um, and being able to obviously got to be able to pay your bills. If you're not paying your bills, you, you need to go. Um, but, you know, if you're, you're adequately stubborn and um, you really have got a good foundation around you, uh, you can pretty much live where you want to. You know, a plastic surgeon once told me, you know, Brian, you just have to kind of get out there and, and hang your shingle. And it was probably the best advice, best advice and worst Worst, worst advice and best advice I ever had because it really steeled my desire to stay in LA because uh, we were kind of an inflection point. Do we go or do we stay? I was looking at other jobs, but mm-hmm. uh, it eventually became like, you know, I come from a family of independent business people and I'd never run a business before. And so being in LA, you're supposed to like have a steady income and you, you got a, a salary or, or, or you got work bonuses. And all of a sudden all that goes away. And then you're like cast adrift and you're like, well, what do I do now? I have got no business. Back sure. um, I talked to a couple of people, but you know, my grandfather who was an independent businessman passed away a while ago. So he wasn't there to give me advice. Mm-hmm. So I, I we kind of just sort of worked it out together, but staying in California became obviously a priority for us because of the family. And also we did set down deeper and deeper roots and uh, it just became sort of like part of our, our DNA. It became part of us. And it became a priority for us is to to stay and, and and succeed. That's awesome. Well, so you and your wife started this practice. So this is the Cranial Spinal Center of LA. You guys started that one together. Sounds like at about the time you were starting a family. Is that are those within the same realm? Exact same time. In fact, um, my son was born in 2012, and we started business basically late 2011. Um, and essentially what happened was there was about a year and a half gap when we were sort of going, we didn't have like a really, we had an office, but we were kind of having some, some, some office issues where we wouldn't get along with somebody, or they said that we can't, we can't uh, sublease anymore. There was some issue. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up like, we finally got our office that we're in now been here for almost 11 years. Um, we started while they were still fixing the suite 
and um, we were just training our, our first two new employees and there was plywood instead of uh, an actual de- countertop. So wow. it pl- started on plywood. In fact, my wife went into labor uh, right as the same week she was supposed to train these two folks. So I ended up training them. Um, and there was a transition point when my son was born late that year, uh, 2012. Um, we were literally just just getting started. Like we, I don't think we even seen our first patients yet. And they hadn't even put in the, the countertops that are there now. So it was Incredible. a crazy confluence of events. It was nuts. We still talk about it and in just incredulity, just unbelievably stressful and, and nutty. For sure. And if those two people aren't with your guys' practice anymore, at least your wife now can blame you for the, the poor training. That's right. That's, she's <laughs> like, oh, I don't really want to train these guys. I'm just going to go into labor and he can do it. We've been very blessed. You know, we, we've had some some a little bit of turnover, but the the employees now that have been with us, uh, our, our coordinator has been with us for over eight years now. So, uh, and she says she wants to stay and re- eventually retire uh, from the job rather than uh, go somewhere else. So we're we're very blessed. Uh, Dedication is important to any small business, I'm sure as you know. Oh, and sure. you must be like an acolyte of the business. You got to believe in it. You got to want to work it. And you got to really treat your people with dignity and respect. You know, during COVID, you know, it was that was really rough on everybody. I know, um, and uh, I had to take a pay cut during COVID, a uh, big one, in order to keep everyone employed. Uh, but you also learn about who's critical. You know, if someone quits, can you do the job and, and just? But don't really, you know, you don't want to burn everybody out. And so sometimes we just gotta sort of take a break, uh, cut back hours a little bit, and just sort of let people breathe. Because it, when it was crazy, it was really crazy. I mean, really nuts, busy, busy, busy. And that's great. That's super. Everyone's all about growth, growth, growth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you gotta like think about what's more important getting another one or 2% or getting, you know, keeping the people you got cultivating relationships with them and having them be loyal to the practice and be your best advertisers rather than just trying to like, let's cram in five more patients today. That's not really good. That that's that, that it sounds fantastic. And a lot of people think it's wonderful and maybe it works for them in their model. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're running a business that's service-based or customer service-based like, like medicine is, this is kind of where the, the separates, you know, sort of more of a commodity versus a service. And you really have to focus on your employees, your staff uh, being happy and being your best spokespeople uh, aside from you um, that will really speak to how the patients are going to be treated in your practice. And that leads mm-hmm. to attention, not just of your employees, but your patients as well. Cause they notice people are happy when they're working and they're super dedicated um, and they're, you know, they're very friendly, but they're also very focused on, maintaining experience, but also building your, your business for you. For sure. And not even being your best spokespeople, but like being at their best while they're at work. If they're certainly happy while they're at work and there's, you know, there's not all that overarching, the, the level of service that they provide then to your patients is so much better. Uh, Cause I'm sure you've, when you were young, you probably walked into a doctor's office and you could just tell the nurse was not having it, whether it was a bad day or just a bad, you know, season of her life. Like you, you can read that. And so, uh, you guys aren't a, you guys aren't a crazy huge practice. Right. And so it's not something where, you know, people are going to notice if, if your people aren't at their best. Uh, and so being able to cultivate that type of atmosphere, I a thousand percent agree with you is, is more important than seeing the five extra patients that one day, just for a little bit of, you know, a few more dollars. Um, it's yeah, just way you more, really, you really can't squeeze, 
uh, you really should avoid trying to squeeze that little bit of extra work out of people. You know, they talk about efficiencies and Six Sigma and all this other stuff that's, you know, mm-hmm. it's corporate speak. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what your model is and if that's what you're, you're trying to do and, and works for you. But I find that the harder you push people, the more they burn out, the more unhappy they are. And eventually they leave and it costs you more money to train someone up to that level um, and retain them. And then you just cycle through people, which is never you know, never smart, never a good business practice because you, mm-hmm. you don't have that sort of level of uh, institutional memory that you get from people who are part of your business for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, who all of a sudden are very vested in your success and they're happy. And it comes through in interactions with even on the telephone or just randomly in the office where patients, they pick up on that stuff. And it's, right. it's much less robotic. I, I, we, I went to the same pediatrician until I was like, you know, 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, their office was always like very lighthearted. It was fun. Um, you know, you, and it comes through and patients pick up on that vibe that, you know, it's, it's either it's robotic or it's, it's very homely and it's very welcoming. So the atmosphere is created by how you treat your staff, how you conduct yourself with them, um, even in random interactions, buying lunch, joking around, uh, you know, having a team building day, or you just you have yep. your annual, we have an annual holiday dinner that we take every, everyone and their spouses comes to, and we party, you know, it's fun. We have a great time, we tell jokes, and we sometimes do, you know, random stuff together. And it, it, be, it creates that atmosphere that, that permeates when patients come in the door. Yes, so. I love that. So yeah. you and your wife run in the practice together. So talk to me about uh, that work dynamic that you guys have. I know she's kind of your your practice manager. Um, yeah. You would then be considered practice, the practice performance, right? Uh, <laughs> talk to me about the work dynamic that you guys have there. And then, and then how does that translate over to your work-life balance that you guys have together as a family? So we, you know, obviously working together, um, you know, you don't always see eye to eye. And certain changes uh, become scary and you may disagree about them. So mm-hmm. when we started, it was obviously, you know, she'd worked in, a, in a, a dental or orthodontics practice before seeing, you know, very high end clients in, in Santa Monica also. And so she had some familiarity with the people, with the demographic and things like that. So I sort of deferred some of the decisions, a lot of decisions to her in terms of location and sort of how to do things. Um, and I think when you do a business with your spouse, you have to learn there are certain things you need to let go of. And there are certain just uh, things that are just not worth disagreeing over. But I think more than anything, um, it's about mutual respect and trust. And, you know, you don't always see eye to eye. And and certainly that's very common when spouses work together. And so things get out of balance. You're always, you know, especially when you're first starting the first five, six, seven years, you're you know, going back and forth, you're stressed about are things going to, are we going to fly? Are we not going to fly? And are we working? Are we not working? Um, So there becomes a sort of like uh, an all enveloping shadow around the practice and in your personal Mm. life that is very hard to sort of get out. But we talked about, my wife actually talked about building sort of a, a citadel around us, a fortress. So eventually we sort of started walling off practice talk once we got home. And awesome. that was very important. I mean, even like random comments like, oh, so-and-so called and we need to take care of that. 
not even for VIP patients. I mean, occasionally, you know, if she's working from home and I, I it's like sort of an admin day for me and, and someone important or, or there is a major issue going on, she's obviously, oh, hey, you know, Mr. Smith called and he's having some issues. Obviously, that's going to penetrate into the home life, but you really have to cordon off as much as you can in terms of like making home about home, business is about business. And especially, you know, if you're super stressed, it's very hard to do, especially if it's lean or if you're making a big change, your, your lease is coming up, you got to negotiate with your landlord, uh, contracting just came out and they gave you a crappy rate uh, or, you know, somebody gave you a bad review on Google. Any of those things can sort of throw off your balance. You just have to be sort of be ready for that. But you have to realize that your spouse or partner is the most important person to you, not just because obviously because you're married and you're building a family, but from mm -hmm. a business perspective, because they, you have this trust with them that they are going to do the right thing and they have your, they have your mutual best interest in mind. So they're really invested. But I think at the same time, you know, when spouses want to get out of the practice, they don't, they want to sort of step back. You have to be ready for that and you have to mm -hmm. respect them um, and let them, let them do that. Because at some point I'm sure she's going to want to say, Hey, I want to do something else. Or I want to, I want to sort of step back and, you know, and, and it's going to yeah, create she's still human, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to understand, like when I first started, I was pushing everybody, myself, everybody way too hard, especially her. And it just, it became a situation where it was really rough. And mm -hmm. um, you kind of have to be able to, you have to understand like doctors were used to operating at a very high performance level. Like there's just only 110% or nothing. Yep. So you can't, you got to realize that normal people are not designed that way. And that you have to, you know, you have to exhale, you have to allow them to exhale and mm -hmm. maybe you're too, because, you know, you'll get into the B word, you know, burnout and you don't, mm -hmm. you don't want to burn out your spouse, especially if they work with you, but it's exhausting, especially if you're anxious and tired and you had a crappy week and you're just like, Hey, we still got this business. We have to run. We also have a family to conduct. And you got to sort of stay focused. So we, you know, the schedule is important, giving her time, giving me time, uh, giving her space to do her work in the mornings. Like we, I'll drop off my son and uh, she'll go do you know, billing and stuff that, that, that she just, she says, she's just quiet. She wants your fishbowl. Don't talk to me. You know, she needs yeah. an hour to sort of work claims and sort of argue with the insurance companies um, and, and sort of just do her thing. And, and she's had some really, really great ideas about her payer relationships, about patient relationships. And I sort of, I bounce everything off of her. We do run this truly together. So I don't look at it as I'm the present CEO, even though on paper I am, we kind of co-preside over the business and I have to credit her with so much of really a ton of what we do and the successes we've had. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard and I appreciate her so much. It's just really, really hard to ask this of your spouse, but I will tell you, there's no better business partner and no one who will look out, look, you know, as the military, as the military guys say, check your six or watch your six. Mm -hmm. And the person who you're married to or our long-term relationship with, whatever that that looks like, um, because, you know, you won't get embezzled. Uh, they won't steal from you because really they're stealing from themselves. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, it's everyone's success. Yeah. So well said. Everything you just said. I, uh, I'm. You can't see me on the camera, but I mean, you could, but the, the audience can't. I was just shaking my head yeah. the whole time. I, yeah. I agree with all that. One thing, um, it's an old saying, like, uh, stress is the genesis of downfall. And so like, if, if you have that stress and, and to be with your spouse and to have the stress at work, and then that stress gets carried over at home, if you allow it to, 
uh, then in comes the D word, right? Divorce. And so, you know, finances is like the the number one cause of divorce. How do you guys separate everything that she's managing from a financial standpoint at the office? Uh, then that translates, like he's, you talked about embezzlement, obviously that there's no embezzlement there, but like, how does that translate then to your guys' personal finances? How do you work, work that dynamic together? You know, the, 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 you know, the, the main thing is, uh, you know, committing to each other and learning how to respect each other's space and also getting in tune with and listening. And, um, you know, as a guy, you know, that's obviously always a challenge, right? Really understanding what your wife is telling you or your spouse is telling you and Mm -hmm. understanding the, the context of things. So, you know, finances are important, right? So I obviously involve her in major stuff. I handle the day-to-day things, you know, in terms of the business, I pay the bills and she sort of works on the money coming in. So Mm -hmm. to kind of do that labor up when it comes to, to personal finances, you know, I think discussing things and really respecting, um, uh, their acumen, her acumen in terms of what she wants and what she wants to do. Like for instance, if she wants to invest in the market, then you do some due diligence and it's almost like doing a business proposal, right? You like say, okay, okay. this is what we're looking at in terms of, or I've listened to this podcast and I, I've talked to my brother or I talked to my friend and these are safe investments. What what do you think? And she'll respond, say up or down. So you, and you have to respect that that discussion because you can't go through like a bull in a china shop, as she always says. You can't go through yeah. like a china shop and just sort of wreck things. Like you know, I I forgot. I think it was Microsoft. I think it was Bill Gates who said, uh, "Move fast and break things," or maybe it was the guy from Google. I don't know who said that, <laughs> but um, one of those Silicon Valley guys. And I don't think that's a way to run a, a marriage. And I think if you do that, yeah. especially when we run a business together, you're you're going to be headed for strife and problems. For sure. When you think about, uh, yeah, when you think about how you guys interact, then is she from a risk tolerant standpoint? Is is she a little bit more conservative and you're a little bit more risk tolerant? How does that factor into your guys' conversations and and your business proposals that you're presenting to each other? Well, it's like a tango, right? It's it's a little bit of a back and forth. It's a dance. Um, Like in surgery, oftentimes surgeons who've been around for a while, they they talk about how you're operating. It's almost like uh, dance moves, right? You're sort of like there's a back and forth between you and your assistant or between you and the tech. And mm-hmm. in 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 life, it really is, it, you are pretty much, you're dancing with your partner and you have to give when she takes and take when she give and, and you have to sort of go back and forth and dance. And sometimes you're out of step. But I think for major important stuff, you know, if he or she doesn't want to discuss finances, then I just want to chill and watch Netflix. You got to respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes up, you're like, okay, yeah, I've been thinking about something um, and this is what we should do. Risk tolerance. I've always been a little bit more, I would say, the dreamer in terms of what I would like to do. And mm-hmm. she's certainly more pragmatic person um, in terms of the relationship and the back and forth. And I would say, you know, uh, commitment uh, is critical. We've been through a lot of stuff together, personal stuff. I'd have Obviously, we're not going to talk about this podcast, but there's there's we've been through some things together and uh, mm-hmm. sort of it, it can pull you apart. It can draw you together. And sometimes it does both. But, you know, we've had to sort of really glom on to each other and sort of get uh, get to a wavelength that we're on uh, together. And that takes time. So she's certainly the more conservative person. And I respect that. And I, I need that balance 
with my decision-making process. Cause sometimes I'll be like, out of hell with this. Why are we even doing this? Uh, mm-hmm. Or she'll be like, yeah, well, this is why it's been good to do this. Or she'll actually, you know, when we made a major change of the practice, um, she said, she said, I've been looking at the numbers and I think we can drop this, this particular insurance. And, and I'm like, well, that's really big. That's a big part of our practice. And we did that at her behest and, and there was a little bit dicey for a little bit, but it's made things a lot nicer. I mean, it's still scary, yeah. right? Still trying that out. So sometimes you'll kind of dance, you'll switch up and she'll be the more like, Hey, let's go for this, you know? Or sometimes I'll be like, well, I want to, you know, I think we should jump into that and maybe do this. It it becomes a sort of a back and forth. And really what we've had to do is essentially become our own advisors. So okay. it, obviously people out there who make money advising on business stuff, We've obviously been through all the a lot of those folks, and some of them have been very good. Most have not been. For um, sure. So we have financial advisors and several people handling stuff, and my mom's stuff, and and all sorts of things that that we have to involve folks in. But when it comes to our own counsel, really, we're each other's best counsel. And I think if you can have that dynamic between spouses in business together, or brothers, siblings, whoever, parents, and children, you have to really like be able to flex up, flex down. You have to be able to step back when they step forward and so forth. Otherwise you just butt heads all the time. And, and we still do, but it, it's really more about like, we want to succeed. We want our kid to have a nice life. If he wants to go to, you know, if he can get into MIT, great. You know, we're going to do everything we can to make sure we can make that happen. Um, obviously I'll work my, my tail off to make it, make that so. Cause you mm-hmm. really don't want to, you don't want to have a life where you work for the sake of avoiding contact with you know reality right for a sure, lot of 100 they go through three or four spouses and a lot of it's you know maybe it's narcissism maybe it's just they can't they can't hack it but you know in, in my own life i you have to really folk i've had to really focus up and realize that if i take call at four hospitals that's not good right i won't be around for my kid i'll have a ton of money but a lot of that money will be going out the door to, for support and stuff if you don't hold your stuff together, right? You got to be like, well, maybe got to cut back. Um, you know, that old adage, work, work, work smarter, not harder. Uh, so in medicine, there really isn't direct correlation between working really super hard and making a lot of money. I, I've seen a lot of colleagues operate on a lot of people, maybe that don't need it, or that may be a little questionable, or they take every single insurer and they're sleeping in their car and they're never home. And they're not right. around a ton of money, but they also have like, you know, eight employees and their payrolls outlandish because they have to have that many employees in order to handle all that flow. And it's really, it's inefficient. And then when they, when the carriers start figuring out that they don't have to pay you on time, you're host. And all of a sudden yeah. you're working at night and handling, you know, issues with patients post-op, but you don't get paid to handle. And all of a sudden, where's the money? Oh, why are you working all the time then? Where's the money at? So it's a trade-off. You have to understand there's a there's a balance of whatever kind of however your practice ends up falling together. Yeah, it's always a dance. I think that's a great analogy for you. You talked about it within your marriage. You talked about it within, you know, working at your practice. Now you've talked about it with, you know, other, you know, peers of yours who are not necessarily doing it the most efficient way. It's all a dance. Yeah. Uh, and it's you, you're either really good at dancing or you're, you know, two left feet. Too lefty. And there are a lot of different ways to, to dance. Some people, they have, you know, 12 employees and they're doing great. They're killing it. I, I've got a, a friend on the East Coast who's a private practice guy uh, in Long Island, and he is growing by leaps and bounds. And that's great. I just, 
you know, for me, I, I could bring in a colleague or I could bring someone else. For me, I realized that if, if you stay sort of efficient and lean, then you can make changes and, and you're, you're sure that things continue to operate and you grow at a reasonable pace rather than trying to grow by quantums. You grow by, you know, multiples or increments. Increment so people stuff. are like, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the multiple? What's my multiple? What's my multiple? You really can't treat your business like venture capital. Although obviously people make a ton of money off venture capital funding. Running a business like that is, it can be kind of a bit tricky and, you know, end up doing a pump and dump in your own business. The only person right. that wins is your lawyer's, or, you know, the people who are going to buy your practice at a discount, you know, because you can't afford it anymore. Yep. hundred percent. All right. So there's a few topics I definitely wanted to nail with you today. So we're going to dive into those. Uh, they're kind of all over the place. So bear with me. That's just uh, cool. how I operate. Um, you mentioned one like practice that are growing at quantums uh, versus increments. I think that's in any industry, I think that's very true. You know, you have the Googles of the world, but then I'm sure that there's a, a small search engine out there that nobody knows about, and they're just slowly incrementally growing. One thing that's big in just about any industry that you could talk about in the last 12 months has been artificial intelligence. It mm. is incorporating itself into every crack of every industry. What impacts do you see uh, AI having in what you do each day? I have... Um... We were just talking about this last night on a phone call with the California Medical Association. Um, it's very concerning. Um, you start realizing, though, very quickly, AI is already here, right? It's already in there. It's baked into a lot of the software we use. And uh, it's baked into even work stuff I use and your phone. Um, I think, you know, the main thing is that with a lot of stuff that people do and societies build is that they build it as they're flying it. You know, there's always this, again, uh, move fast and break things. I, I don't know if I subscribe to that fully. Um, I think with AI, there's obviously a huge opportunity for, you know, surgical planning, treatment decision-based things, uh, chat GPTing a patient who's having issues. I think, you know, there, AI should always be a tool and not the primary touch point for anything in medicine. I think we saw recently, I believe it was Cigna that decided to batch deny claims uh, 50 at a time with an AI program. They would deny doctor's claims, you know, just basically put in the circular file using an AI chatbot or an AI uh, algorithm, excuse me. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously the, the propensity to do evil. Um there is a, obviously AI can help you shortcut a lot of things. It can help you do things faster, like, you know, getting prior authorization. The issue is that we we haven't really built the guardrails first. And if you're driving on a steep, windy mountain road, I would rather drive on the road after the guardrails are up at those steep areas or where there's going to be some ice, because I don't want to go over the side and crash and burn. So, but I think we can't, build the guardrails now i think the, the cat's pretty much out of the bag and then we're, we're basically here already right so with ai there is uh, a real role i think for helping you maybe with treatment decisions but you should always bear in mind that using a tool is using a tool whether or not it can answer back or not so uh people make the ai there can be mistakes there could be errors there could be complete misunderstandings and not understanding what it is you're asking. My biggest concern is that there's always been this very big push for guidelines, right? They're all about guidelines now, guidelines. A lot of it ends up morphing into cookie cutter medicine where 
patient has problem X, they need treatment Y, there's no, and there's no allowing for other things. Right. And they're always saying, well, no, 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 you know, there's always room for, you know, human decision-making processes. The problem is when you automate stuff and you offload responsibility to AI, who's responsible for the patient and is the patient getting the best thing? Or are you just putting them into a patient, the patient to a, into a box with a chatbot and the you know, chatbot bats, bats them around like a, a cat with yarn and then throws them out. And finally, they're supposed to be better. And then we're looking at the outcomes. The outcomes still suck. And why is that happening? So now we have to redo the algorithm, right? We got to realize, oh my God, we made a, we put an asterisk instead of a, instead of an exclamation here in the code. Oh crap. Again, human error. And nobody right. bothered because it's supposed to tell you. It's like that, those crashes with the 737 maxes, they had the sensor that was maladjusted. Nobody knew about it. And nobody had that part of the manual that says, this is how you override that sucker so you don't die. But three mm -hmm. planes crashed. Hundreds of people died. So my concern is the, the the blind use of AI saying, oh, man, AI is the bomb. It's going to fix everything. That is a recipe for dumbness and disaster and avoidable problems. So we, we should use it as a tool. But again, you have to take res ultimate responsibility. My, my concern is that as scope of practice changes and, and other people involved in the medical you know, relationship with patients and doctor patients and doctors that they're going to say, okay, well, it wasn't me. It was the AI chatbot that told the patient to go do this. I, it's not my fault. That's not good. That's not what I would call good use of the tool. That is a diffusion of responsibility. And uh, that my, my concern is that people are in a, such a hurry to do more and churn out more and produce more and then diffuse responsibility saying, not my problem. The chatbot did it. Ultimately, that's where it's going to go, right? I mean, we know it's going to happen. You see it here, here coming down the pipe, but you're like, nobody wants to say, oh, dude, bro, slow down. We need to talk about this. My, my concern is the, 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 the people are so desperate to be early adopters and all about it, all about it, really need to sort of say, well, we need to talk about this. How does it look when the chatbot or the, the algorithm tells somebody to do something bad? Um, mm. who's, who's ultimately accountable for that? And we need to talk about that before we put it into the put it into the bake into the into the the mix mm -hmm. that's my that's my thing is i i think we need to uh, outline some things first and then maybe figure out how ai fits in after that yeah i've 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 had multiple discussions with with doctors about this um in different facets right there's the, the ai technology that's coming out now that um you know could almost read like a ct scan or uh an x-ray and and maybe find maybe it finds something that a doctor couldn't but there's still something to be said about just the human, yes, there can be human error, but to your point, there can be AI error because of human error. Uh, to me, I think AI is now, or should be incorporating itself kind of at this ground level that we're seeing it come into the, the healthcare industry, like in administration. Like if you think of like EMR, like it, it use it to put together all the medical records for people because that's just words, right? And that's, that's a doctor inputting their own uh, thought processes and input into the actual AI and then let it, you know, come up beautifully with wording and and however it organizes it and sends off a file, you know, I mean, you could have it do a lot of automation, but I think it should be that way from an administration standpoint, not necessarily from a care or a treatment standpoint, because there's still the power of a doctor having expertise, seeing all the different scenarios that they had in their career to then look at something and be like, here's what the you know, the proper treatment for this specific situation is versus trusting a bunch of doctors to sit in a room and put all these different situations into an AI and say, hey, if this ever comes up, AI, 
you know, we gave you our input. This is the answer that you should give. I think it's dangerous. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to talk about what I do outside of being the host of the Doctors and Dollars podcast. I'm the CFO of Grand Vision Capital Group. At Grand Vision, we work with high-income earners who make a great living but still can't quite break through that true wealth ceiling. We utilize strategically chosen investments tailored for high-income earners. The question always at the forefront of our minds is, why wait for retirement to finally live when you can implement an investment strategy that will impact your life today? To be honest, most of the people we work with never even knew these options existed because their financial planner doesn't have access to these exclusive investments. So if you're ready to finally turn your high income into real wealth, visit our website, www.grandvision.co, and hit the Take Action button in the top right corner to schedule some time with me. Or even better, connect, follow me on any of my social media accounts, shoot me a message. Now, back to the show. I would agree. And I think, you know, now you're reaching into the the who holds the purse realm, right? So mm. administrators don't want to be told that an AI can do their job because they're going to lose out on their seven-figure salary with bonuses. And that means that they're hosed. Uh, so they're obviously not going to, they're going to do everything they can to not let that happen, even though really AI can do most, if not all of what they do, which is mm -hmm. pricing, deal-making with vendors, negotiating with different payers and Medicare, all those can be automated, right? They don't require mm -hmm. a human. They just require some sort of negotiation between two parties. They don't have to be human, right? Mm -hmm. But to like like say for instance you have a a, a, a section meeting of a, of a particular surgery let's say like in our spine section meeting right you're going over a case like hey I have a very difficult case and you have like stuff that you're like maybe I understand this maybe I don't and you have three or four other opinions from from experienced people who are like oh yeah man I saw one of those two years ago and, and this is how I did it but their approach which then oh well I'll adopt that no well maybe you realize that you just remember something about the patient that they they won't tolerate that or you can't do it so you're able to negotiate the negotiation and the the problem is that the stakeholders who are most afraid of AI replacing them are the ones telling the people who shouldn't be replaced that they should be replaced by AI. So yeah, there's crazy dynamic going on. Like for instance, you know, I I've, I have a friend who's a radiologist. She's a very bright person, neuroradiologist, and she works in AI. And I tell her, her name is Susie. I say, Susie, you know, you're you're gonna get replaced too. You know, slow your roll. But you know, she's super super bright, love her to death. But um, I worry that she's maybe one of these early adopters. She needs to kind of pump the brakes a bit. Um, but yeah, you know, you you know, there are algorithms out now that are see, supposedly seeing brain tumors super early in MRIs or CAT scans, which are are that's wonderful. But also sometimes that AI may not know there was a prior head injury, and mm. all of a sudden, you know, Bob Smith is having an unnecessary you know brain biopsy, and like yeah, brain biopsies are pretty benign procedures, but you're still sticking a needle in someone's brain. Things can happen, right? Uh, or you know, you're losing the context of the case, which is still as far as technology is concerned right now is still really kind of in the purview of the humanity of medicine. You know, medicine is an art and a science. So my concern is that, you know, because of certain stakeholders and people or power brokers, they're the ones that are probably most likely to be safely replaced by an algorithm or a bot. They don't want to hear anything about that, right? They just yeah. want to know cogs in the wheel, i.e. the doctors now are, are replaceable by an algorithm. And really there is no substitute for the human touch. And you're really, you're actually going to be, again, 
you're, you're looking at the quarterly spreadsheets rather than two, three, four years down the line where you're just looking at, oh yeah, we saved this much money this quarter and look at this, but then you've lost and gone through a whole bunch of physicians or you've fired them or you said, well, we're going to replace you, ER doctor, with an algorithm and we're just have the nurse do what the algorithm tells her to do, which ultimately is what they want, right? Because mm-hmm. that'd be a lot in their opinion. And AI doesn't need to take a lunch break. They don't have a state mandated uh, pension or whatever that you need to worry about. You know, if we're about payroll taxes, right? But ultimately, and this is where sort of the crux of the question is, how do we make things cheaper and more efficient and safer? It, it's not in offloading decision-making processes to a bot or an algorithm when it comes to someone's health and safety. Ultimately, it's going about collaborating with this automating administrative tasks, like like you said, gathering medical records, gathering films, doing comparisons between treatment responses for cancer. That is something absolutely an algorithm can do. Say, hey, they have uh, lymph nodes are smaller. It's working. Suggest keep on going with the current regimen. Hey, that's disco. I love it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. The problem is you get into this, let's replace so-and-so with an AI chatbot. And they'll say, oh, no, no, that's not what we want to do. To do. Yes, of course, it's what you want to do because you want to save a whole bunch of money and make more yeah. money stuff and just have a computer and buy a desktop or a server rather than paying, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Nate uh, uh, more money. So mm-hmm. there is no getting around the human touch in medicine. I'm sorry. You know, I certainly would never want an algorithm to operate on my appendix, even though it's quote unquote, a, a, a simple surgery, right? Yep. No, not ever, yep. never. So unless those folks who are pushing the AI are willing to go to that route and accept what they're deciding, you know, we're in the middle of a potential government shutdown and, and the Congress people will still get paid after the shutdown happens, right? Mm-hmm. But so the TSA or or uh, the guy working at the state medical hospital isn't going to get paid, yet he or she still has to work, right? No pay, and they still have to work. So unless what's good for the goose is good for the gander, I really don't see a, a way we need to have that discussion. Until they really say, I'm willing to have an AI chatbot make my insurance call for me, CEO of the hospital X, when you're ready to do that, fine. Let's see how it goes. Until then, no way, Jose. Yeah, it's it's not letting technology um, bring the corporate side into healthcare. You still, the whole point of healthcare is to care for someone's health. And that's done by doctors uh, in that one-on-one setting, in those decision-making processes, keep the corporate side of it out as long as we can, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, because really- there's a lot of very interesting things that venture capital is doing right now and, and hedge funds investing in doctor's practices. And I, I have some friends that did that and they're very happy so far. I hope that continues though, um, because ultimately some of the less responsible VC, for, VC firms may look at things like, you know, it's like more like almost like a complex pump and dump scheme. And mm-hmm. I'm sure pump and dump is. So for the listeners, you know, basically you pump up the stock price and then you dump it out onto the market. So you make a huge killing and then everyone else who's holding the stock gets hosed. So there was a, a, a I think it was a private equity firm, I think American Emergency Physicians or something that just folded and, and declared bankruptcy. And I think the FTC is suing them right now, Federal Trade Commission, because mm. they pump and dump scheme. Um, so that's not kosher. But I think if you can do like you know, we have this environmentally responsible investing now that's very controversial, but I look at it like this. If you want to invest in something and you have certain values that you want to, if you like, you want to make it green or carbon neutral, who's to say you can't do that? Just do it. I mean, what's illegal about that? It's free choice, right? So if you want to build a business 
and do so responsibly. And like we talked about incrementally, where you're not buying up a million physicians, then all of a sudden, you know, you start cutting their wages and then replacing them with bots mm-hmm. or uh, people who are not doctors making medical decisions and pushing and lobbying for those people to be able to practice without a medical license or with less training. That's not cool. And you need to kind of slow down, take a breath and say, we can do this in five years rather than five months. Like, let's just say we're going to keep building slowly and people will look at us as like, they're a model company. Like I'll have to give a shout out to like uh, things like Pat, like a company like Patagonia, who really does things the proper way. And there are a lot of companies, usually smaller businesses, that sort of look at their employees like assets. Costco, for instance. Um, the CEO of Costco, my dad, when he retired, worked at Costco for about six, seven years. And yes, there were some ups and downs and things I didn't like that happened to him. But ultimately, they took great care of him. They allowed him to purchase long-term care insurance, without which my mom would be on the street right now. Because mm-hmm. he ended up running to the situation where he was like in a donut hole and he needed a lot of care that was not covered by Medicare. And thank God for those 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 things that were offered by the company, those long-term care insurance options, where they really sort of took care of him after he couldn't work anymore. So that's the kind of thing that responsible companies can do, and even whatever company you have can do in medicine. Now, corporate practice in medicine, fortunately, you don't see a lot of that. You see a lot of like just guys in very shiny suits and very expensive haircuts um, who are just doing stuff that is like. Uh, that doesn't sound right, but I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. It's not good for patients. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm trying to decide where I want to transition this next thought to, because uh, one of them is is top of your mind. It's going to get you all fired up. The other one's more about your job. Let's go to the job one first. So mm-hmm. I, I mentioned in your bio, uh, you perform minimally, minimally invasive techniques as well as traditional surgery. Uh, what are some examples in, in the neurosurgeon space? that are considered uh, minimally invasive as it relates to spinal injuries. Got it. Um, You know, I would say that the majority of, you know, minimally invasive surgery is something that we look uh, at as sort of like more of a a technique thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you're you're dealing with patients with spine issues and sort of minimally invasive, uh, it focuses more around the approach of how you take care of the patient. So for instance, we're doing, um, let's say you're doing a microdiscectomy. So you're taking uh, a piece of a disc that broke off and it's causing pain, sciatica usually. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go ahead and do it through a very small opening, like 16 millimeters, which is sub 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 inch, like it's small. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of do a technique where you sort of move the muscles to the side and, and get into the space and remove the, the piece of disc or whatever material is pushing on the, the nerve and you get out of there and you're done in an hour, hour and a half. Sometimes people could do it in 30 minutes. Some people do. And, you know, the whole thing is getting patients back to meaningful life and a productive life, you know, productive member of society, or at least out of pain. And, um, you know, there are different things that sort of run the gambit of like, uh, putting hardware in through a small incision in the skin, like putting screws in through, you know, an incision this big, you know, maybe like a half an inch long. You're putting in like two, sometimes three screws on either side, which is a little bit nuts, but you you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, like everything, even to like, uh, like I'm starting to do is more endoscopic surgery where you're doing an eight millimeter incision, which is half of the smallest size that you can do through a tube. Tube wow. is generally... 16 millimeters. This is eight millimeters using an HD camera and uh, uh, simultaneously irrigating endoscope and instruments through a, through a port in that endoscope. 
And that's really pushing the envelope, which is really fun. And as long as patients do well and you're trained up and, you know, obviously you, you want to make sure that you're choosing the cases carefully, that's a, a real benefit to your practice. And obviously you can get more patients that way with, you know, good results, you know, being straightforward with the patients. Uh, and obviously if it's not working, doing the right thing at that moment, you know, this mm -hmm. is the big for the port or, you know, this is not a good situation or I have a CSF leak or something else. I really need to sort of pull back and not do the fancy pants thing and do the right thing first. A lot of times, you know, technology as it develops in spine, you have uber, uber early adopters, right? Who are trying to push the envelope. And a lot mm -hmm. of times they, they can do it, right? They get, they, they invent a new thing, a new doodad, and they're all of a sudden doing these, these amazing cases. Now, obviously, there are times you don't usually hear about when it's like a catastrophic failure, right? There's hardware art that gets put out there all the time. I've pulled out several bits and pieces that were not really, probably should never have been in the spine in the first place, but were FDA cleared. You know, it's not like they were put in someone's garage. They were done in the hospital and they were mm -hmm. bought, you know, vetting and stuff. But you're like, what the hell is this? So why, why was this in the spine? <laughs> There are spacers also that, you know, and also different, you know, there are people who are not surgeons fusing the spine and there's been out several position papers put out that this is not okay. And we've tried to talk to industry and, and, and companies that just because you can do something, it's like that thing from Ian Malcolm from uh, Jurassic Park, just because you're able to do something doesn't mean you should. I'm paraphrasing terribly here, but that's what yeah. he said, Yep. Uh, but more eloquently by Michael Crichton. So uh, and played by Jeff Goldblum, obviously the amazing Jeff Goldblum. Obviously. Yep. So I, I can't do the cadence that he does because he's so unique in the way he delivers it. But that's really what you say. So um, minimally invasive is really philosophical. It's a, it's a technique. It's an approach. And really, I'm about, you know, minimizing postoperative pain meds, getting people off of pain meds entirely or never having them start in the first place. But obviously not telling them not to be a hero. You know, if they need it, they need it. Mm -hmm. So my opinion is, you know, minimally invasive it should be done when it's appropriate. But obviously sometimes, you know, where I did my fellowship, they call it maximally invasive surgery, right? So so they have these big incisions, big waxes, they called them, big, huge surgeries. You know, I had an attending that used to take off sets with an osteotome, which is like a chisel, basically a sterile chisel. Jeez. And I'd never seen stuff like that before. Wow, or since. But sometimes, you know, he, he got the job done. He did it his way. And obviously patients uh, did great. But, you know, really minimally invasive shouldn't be just about doing minimally invasive. It's about doing like, this is what I'm going to do for you. And we're going to do it through a small incision. It may take a little bit longer than an incision, but you're going to get back to your life quicker. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a, Hey, let's do minimally invasive first. And if that doesn't work, then surgery, it truly is like case by case. This makes a lot of sense. And this would be the, the final outcome for you that is going to solve it. It's not kind of the, the first stepping stone. Cause I know uh, we've had somebody on the show that uh, oh, you Go ahead, Nate. I was just to say that he he used to do spinal surgery, and now he's got more into regenerative medicine with stem cells and things like that. Not for the sense of uh, it's better. It's just it's um, far too often people go to like a physical therapist. They fail out of physical therapy, and that therapist then says, "Hey, go do some type of spinal surgery." Like that's the next step. Where uh, we talked about like regenerative medicine should be kind of in between there. Like if you fail out of physical therapy, there's some regenerative medicine things that could solve your issue, not the surgery. Uh, and so I know that, I know it's a little controversial, but I just yeah. know that that's minimally invasive as well. Yeah. So minimally invasive, when I'm referring to minimally invasive, it's minimally invasive, you know, surgical, you know, procedures. Size. Yeah. Size. 
So, you know, we try to always do the first surgery as like the definitive surgery. And obviously sometimes we do smaller things, you know, that we try really hard to make sure they work. Obviously you never want to do something, you know, is not going to work. Um, you want to really try to do the definitive operation the first time, every time. And obviously that, that hopefully will be minimally invasive, but yeah. you have patients and say, look, uh, Nate, this is, you need something a little bit bigger than just doing a micro disc because we need a chisel. Yep. You're having terrible back pain and you have a focal, you know, your disc is, is boxed at L45. You know, you're a young cat, you know, we'll, you know, we could do a microdiscectomy, but really it's not the right thing because your leg pain's not your major issue. It's, it's midline back pain. Maybe you need an artificial disc. Maybe you need a fusion. Hopefully an artificial disc will cut the mustard with a young guy like you, but mm -hmm. just example. So, you know, I think, you know, it always becomes down to sort of your guideposts of doing the, the right surgery the first time, but sometimes it's a negotiation with patients where like, I absolutely positively do not want a fusion or I don't want an artificial disc. Uh, and sometimes those patients might be better off at a different practice. Uh, or yeah. sometimes the control negotiate, it's a negotiation where you're sort of like saying, I'm going to control for all the factors, but even so you have to understand like this, this could work or it might not work. And we have to be prepared to the conversation afterwards. We're obviously going with the intent to cure and fix and mitigate and do better, obviously, but there is a possibility that this may not, this may not do it, but we're obviously going to try to do the right surgery every time for patients. That's, that's always my priority. And yeah. certainly, but, uh, you know, you have to be prepared for step B and C. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it can happen sometimes. Yeah. So it's not always just the, hey, based on the severity of the injury, this is what you need. So it sounds like sometimes it is a negotiation, which brings me to a thought. Big sports fan. Obviously you are. We were, we were talking about at the very beginning. You said microdiscectomy. That's what uh, Peyton Manning had back in like 2011. But you've also said fusion. And we know a very popular athlete who had a spinal fusion, several of them actually, uh, Tiger Woods. Why was it such a severe injury that his doctor would have said, Hey, spinal fusion is the solve or is it a little bit controversial. Just be like, Hey, if you want to get back to golfing as quick as possible, let's just fuse this thing together. Uh, and, and see, see if your body can handle the torque that you have with your, your swing and your spine. It, it, it's difficult. I don't know. I, I never took care of Peyton or, or Tiger. Mm -hmm. So that, that aside, uh, yeah. and I've never, who've been asked to consult on them. So just that disclosure. Oh, um, for sure. Uh, you know, with athletes, especially, you know, I, I see a fair number of like weekend warriors, some people who ride a hundred miles at a go uh, on their bike. So, which is a little bit insane, but this is, this is what it is. So you have to be prepared to sort of lay it out for them. I like to actually show the patient their films on a big screen TV and mm go over the films together and I sort of call out the, the pathology. And let's say uh, a Tiger Woods or somebody, a pro golfer comes in, he, has, uh, he or she has sciatica and they have a disc herniation. I would probably obviously maximize non-surgical therapies provided they don't have a, like a neurological deficit or something really bad going on. Um, so let's say they've done all the things and regenerative medicine, obviously we talked about it briefly. Um, there is some controversy there is some support through it through literature, but you have to understand that you really want to have more rigid, you know, sort of clinical trials based on, you know, sort of uh, un uninterested parties or dispassionate parties, as a, a colleague of mine says, uh, dispassionate people are not directly, you know, financially involved to really see, let's, hey, let's see it, you know, stem cells, does it work? Mesenchymal stem cells, uh, PRP, those things really work. Do they not work? Let's look at it. Let's do a large clinical trial and see what happens. So there might be a role for it. I'm not saying there isn't, but there might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say, you know, you're 
always go with what you think is best for the patient. So if, if, if Tiger or uh, um, whatever, uh, Tom Brady or whoever came into my office and they had a herniated disc and they were having sciatica that was referenceable to that level, I would say, okay, you're going to be playing in the Super Bowl later this year. Um, you know, obviously we need to do surgery because you're not getting better. You know, we could go bigger, we could go small, but I, I suggest for your situation, I would rather do a micro disc, rehab the heck out of you, do physical therapy with people I recommend and just be careful. And we're going to work together to get back to uh, playing. I had a, a patient who was a, um, uh, who is a drummer still, she's a drummer. And um, she had a very bad thing called a Chiari malformation, which is basically the brainstem moved down onto and it's kinking the spinal cord and, and crowded in the back of the brain. Wow. She was getting lights, the whole thing. And she really was very symptomatic. After surgery, we, she and I worked together and I listened to their, their list on Spotify and I came up with, and I'm not a musician myself, but I came up with a number of exercises for her as a drummer. And I laid out about a six week protocol of like, play this song, play this bit, first two minutes here, last two minutes here. And I listened to about a dozen or so songs and we kind of came up with a plan together to get back to where she was. She's done great. She's now six or seven years out. I ended up in their liner notes of their album, which was amazing. Nice. Talk about a bucket list thing. Holy cow. Um, But, you know, if a Tom Brady were to come in, and you have this discussion with him face-to-face, tete-a-tete, and say, look, Tom, uh, or Tiger, or whoever, we're going to do this micro disc. And it's possible, you know, there's like a 7 or a 4% chance of reherniation. It may not work. So really going straight to fusion to answer your question, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily like the best thing to do. And it's it's infrequently the best thing to do for that kind of situation. Obviously, every patient's different. And you want to do everything, every move you want to make is to, to their to their benefit. That's what you're there. You're providing a service. Um, so there are some times though, where things are just completely gone to heck and um, the disc is totally collapsed and their problem isn't sciatic. It's midline back pain. And there's a very clear correlation between their pain and their films. And the, it, it localizes well, and you've done the scans, you feel confident, your experience tells you this, then you got to lay it out for them. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have to say, tell, you know, if Tiger just want a micro disc and is, it's bone on bone at L4-5, you know, if his facets are good, you may want to offer him a disc replacement or a fusion, depending on what the facet joints look like. But you really, to offer a surgery that's really not going to be helpful, again, you run into that that wall like, huh, that's not really good, man. I don't want to do it for you because I don't think it's going to get you. But I, I have faith that the surgeons that did uh, these guys, um, I know one of them that did uh, operate on Peyton, I think, I, I don't know for sure. Um, but you know, they, they obviously all of them had the best intentions in mind mm-hmm. and, you know, it's are like a different, almost like a different subgroup of people. I mean, they're, they're big, they're very fast, especially football players. I don't know if you've ever been in the same room as a football player. These guys are big. I mean, they're big human beings. I've yep. got the taking care of a few of them and they're just like another, you know, a next step in evolution or something. These are big fellas. And, um, they they are really big people and their their bodies are incredible and so they produce forces and stuff on themselves whether it be golf soccer football professional swimmers um they do stuff that really normal everyday pedestrian people like you and i can't necessarily do um so you obviously go with treatment you have to go with your experience but look if 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 the person herniated their entire disc into their canal and they're in terrible terrible pain you obviously have to go through your own protocols and say, and, and just counsel them and let them make the decision. 
but ultimately they make make a bad decision. You really need to focus in on, hey, Mr. Smith, this is really, I think, what we have to do. And this is what I think is going to get you better. Yeah. No, that was a great answer. And, and to be fair, uh, Tiger probably just waited so long to actually get it taken care of that by the time he, he actually saw the doctor and, and they were looking at it, they're like, man, you, you kind of push this thing past the point of of like a mentally invasive surgery. We, we have to do a spinal fusion because well, you've just you've just beat the hell out of this thing. You'll just say like, ah, you know, I had a playoff game or whatever. Uh, and taking care of athletes, whether they be amateur or or pro, you know, you will run into that where they'll try to really say, I'm going to muscle through it. You know, yep. and that comes people with concussions too, who have been told, you know, I really want to, uh, you know, do this run, do this race. And they hit their head or they had an ax on their surfboard and they really want to try to, you know, get through it. And really that's, it hasn't been shown to be helpful. In fact, it can be harmful sometimes if you don't have adequate cognitive and physiological rest. So, you know, you really have to say like, and you will sometimes run afoul of their coaches. You know, you will say like, I had a, a guy who fights Muay Thai um, not long ago who had a bad concussion and his coach or his physician had cleared him to go back to fighting. And he was clearly symptomatic. Um, and he came to me as a second opinion and say, hey, my co- my physician coach cleared me, and I, and I just told him within about five minutes of examining him, I said, no way, Jose, you're not fighting this weekend. As, and he said, I kind of figured. I'm like, well, I'm glad because I'm going to be your voice of reason on your shoulder saying this is a no-go. This, fight's a, this fight is canceled. You can't do it. Yeah, man. It's crazy. Uh, but then there's probably people out there that, again, for for the next dollar uh, would be willing to to do what they can do. Uh, yeah, you one, check your ego. Yeah, you really do. For sure. Uh, the thorn in the side, uh, the rock in the shoe that you just can't get out uh, for so many physicians is health insurance providers. Right. What challenges specifically as a neurosurgeon have you seen uh, that have come, you know, obstacles that have come your way because of health insurance providers? And what changes have you and your wife and your practice made uh, to overcome some of those obstacles? Well, um, a recent case example is a young person who uh, has maximized medical treatment and has terrible, unrelenting low back pain, and it's interfering with their lives, and it's very clear they need a disc replacement in their lower back. The insurance carrier, which actually owns the third, supposed third-party assessor, which is ridiculous, but this is what is happening right now. I won't name them because, uh, you know, I think they're going to be fi- finding themselves in a really bad position very soon with a mm-hmm. lot of different divine care. Um, this third party administrator, who's wholly owned by the insurance company that employs them, um, said that, quote, we don't approve lumbar discs, unquote. There was no reason given. There was no scientific evidence to the contrary, even though I provided them with about eight peer reviewed literature supporting not just disc replacement, but that showed it was as good, if not better than fusion, especially in young people. And uh, they just still denied it. And they initially gave me a pulmonologist who was reviewing the case, which is illegal in California. And they got around that by having a neurosurgeon supposedly retroactively review the case. Who so I wait, they had, a, they had a pulmonologist look at a spine injury. It's all the time. In the state of California, that what? is it. But the way they get around that is that they have this the, the, the same specialist look at your case retroactively. 
And so this is how they're selling themselves to these third these insurance carriers that we will have higher denial rates and save you more money because we found a way around the law. Well, eventually the same specialist will review the case, but won't talk to you person to person. In fact, it was very, very hard to find this person who actually doesn't even have a California license to practice nurse surgery. And I finally found out who it is. And there's no way to sort of directly call Dr. Person's guy up and say, hey, bro, uh, what's up? Why is why are we denying this? You saw the scans. You, you heard the report. What else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And so they don't have that conversation, right? So that's the denial. So that's the, that's a rock and a shoe is the denial of, of, of FDA approved things. And they're still labeling them as experimental because they can, because no one's really held them to account. Um, unfortunately, since it's a state-by-state thing, state agencies are overwhelmed, underfunded, and can't go after these carriers unless you start taking class action lawsuits, which is the next step. And I'm sure you saw Aetna lost a big class action lawsuit about lumbar disc replacement, but they're appealing it, mm-hmm. even though they got spanked very badly. Um yep because they have infinite amounts of money and their lawyers are willing to say and do pretty much whatever. And for some reason, you know, sometimes the, the, the plaintiffs like us and the patients can't seem to get their act together and give somebody up there who can give a, a impassioned testimony and engage the, the jurors or whoever's making the decisions and just lay it out for them, which is just the truth. Instead, we get gaslighting and, you know, straw man arguments and ridiculous things that are based on one paragraph in a paper that's actually 500 paragraphs long with a whole <laughs> bunch that actually supports it. And they'll sort of selectively take out little bits saying, oh, see, this one said no. But there's 17 other studies that this meta uh, meta-analysis shows that says this is good stuff. So you're taking one study. That doesn't, does that make any sense? No. No. So this is how they get away with it though. And they, they create these guidelines. And unfortunately, uh, truth is that there's a lot of uh, sort of people in our industry that go to these payers and sell their services and sort of turn and, and they sort of create this sort of Achilles heel effect where they're, they know exactly where to hit us and they're getting a lot of money to do it. And they sort of become chief medical officers of these companies and really turned around and sort of went to the dark side. So that's another, that's the second pebble in the shoe. And the third pebble is prior authorizations, which we kind of touched on the first pebble um, and sort of I'll kind of leave leave you with this uh, thing is that the payers are now doing something already to get around prior authorization reform, which is in Congress right now. They're sort of doing these post-payment reviews, meaning that they've determined they're going to pay you, but before they pay you, they're going to review the case again. And that way they get around the rules of prior authorization. See, they've already built in an escape hatch. So mm-hmm. they not technically you had it authorized, but now before they pay you, they're going to look at it again. So that's that. Unfortunately, that's not going to be governed by prior authorization rights. They've already figured a way around it because their lawyers are very well paid, you know. So we unfortunately have a very broken system. It is fixable, but you know, in terms of running a practice, these are all challenges. A lot of the payers will sort of realize that they're going to lose, and if they get taken to court, they're going to lose. And if it's a, if they go into to appellate court, then it's going to become case law, and they're really hosed, and they don't ever want to get there. So they're always going to settle out of court or they're going to relent. And so we never can quite catch them and say, you know, people ask, well, why insurers are getting away with this? Like, well, because they settle. They settle or they go out of court or it never makes to a pallet, in which case it never becomes case law. Wow. Yeah, that is not what I thought you were going to say. That is, uh, it's unbelievable. Escape hatch is like the perfect word for that. Uh, I just think Indiana Jones, but 
that is that's that's why it's the bad guy getting away it's not, <laughs> it's not good point uh last question i always like to ask uh to end our show as the doctors and dollars uh we look into the future uh so obviously a lot of physicians unfortunately uh as they come out of you know residency they're full-time attending you know their income spikes you know they're starting a family they want to the big house, the fancy car, send their kids to private school, exotic vacations, all the lifestyle that comes with physicians. You're smiling because it's it's true. There's probably peers of yours that you're just like, man, I know you're not doing that well, but you're in Tahiti right now. <laughs> or me in the yeah. beginning. So yeah. Go so it's like everyone's been there, right? And so that's kind of the the thought. Uh, eventually, a lot of them figure it out. Some don't, and they they get out of the thing. But uh, and I don't want you to go into crazy specifics but what types of strategies uh have you and your wife implemented financially to still be able to provide a great quality of life for you and your family but you're also planning for your future goals and for your retirement that's a great question um again i'm gonna have to sort of give a a, a, a sketch because i don't want to give away any trade secrets but i do want to help your yeah. listener so um one thing i recommend to to physicians who are starting out is um try not to uh well, try not to do anything that you know is going to lose a lot of value right away. Your best investment is probably going to be a nice house, a decent house. But, you know, you always buy the ugliest house on the nicest block. Or in this case, buy a house that's in the best school district like we did. We, we bought a house. Um, it was built in 55. It's not 6,000 square feet. It's actually a smaller house. Uh, it goes back to the I Love Lucy days. But we love our little house, right? Mm -hmm. And there's got to do work. I've, I've certainly sharpened my cutting skills on fixing stuff at the house. Um, you know, recently dug a trench, you know, and, 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 uh, had to fix our drainage system. I had to dig a French drain by myself. And so I did that. I cut the pipe. I put the couplers on. I Good glued, for you. Yeah, dug about a 16 foot trench. So, uh, about two foot deep, one and a half foot deep. So, you know, we, my people call it schlepping. So you have to be not afraid to schlep. So, mm -hmm. a, a, you have to do also in your life is is like like I sort of alluded to, is you have to be willing to do stuff yourself. You can't outsource everything to other people. So saving money by fixing something yourself or in your practice when you're first starting, you do don't be afraid to fax things yourself. Now it's everything's electronic. Back in the day, we had to do faxing ourselves. So taking our responsibility and not outsourcing everything because you're quote unquote above it. I think that's a cardinal error that physicians make that. They're above it. They're too good to do that. I'm too good to cut a, to dig a trench. I'm too good good to put up a gate. I'm too good to do this to do that. You're better off saving the money, learning a new skill, and focusing on trying to improve the value of what it is you have. And so, yes, I of course bought a brand new car. I mean, how can you not buy a brand new car? Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm going to blame partially because you kind of pushed me into it. I <laughs> said so you need to get an attending car. All right. Um, I do I do think though that you should be able to spoil yourself a little bit, but I think the the best thing you need to do is invest in in a good house, a property, um, avoid things like having to send your kid to private school. I mean, there are obviously things in, in, in community situations where you have to, you know, there's no other choice. There may not, there may only be like a Catholic school and you're Jewish or vice versa. And you may have to do that, you know, or, or have to, you, you know, in a very maybe remote area. And, and the only thing that's there is a, is a private school or something like that. There are, are situations, mm -hmm. where options. but obviously try to be smart about investing in terms of your uh, personal wealth, open up a high yield checking, uh, 
try to refinance your loans. Keep an eye on the T-bill rate uh, or, or the national the 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 the, the, the national rate for mortgages. Have to, you have to periodically look at your insurance? Can you renegotiate a lower rate for your house insurance, your 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 um, your um, uh, umbrella insurance? So be willing and time, like once a year, to look back at these things. Is it a good time to refinance? Um, try not to do things like taking out HELOCs to fix your house. Try not to do that because you take out a HELOC, it's a second mortgage essentially, and yeah. you're financing your house, which you're still paying mortgage on. So you're paying double mortgage to have that in that brand new kitchen. You may have to put that off for a year or two. So delay of gratification, yes. Um, you know, completely denying yourself uh, gratification, bad idea. It's like dieting. You know, if you cut out completely sweets, you're going to freak out one night and eat a pint of, you know, freaking Haagen-Dazs or a <laughs> Not good. Try try to sort of pepper a little bit of treats in there for yourself, but you're, you're never a bad idea to open a 529 for your kid. So make whatever adjustments you have to, to, to do that for your kid, but always invest in the future and hard assets. You know, you know, brand new iPhone, not so much. Brand new car, convertible Lexus. I made that mistake, you know, and I probably never do it again, but I have a car now. It's a nice car, but I, I bought it. And I, I took the depreciation, but eventually in about two years, I'm not going to have any more payments on it. So you better mm -hmm. believe it. So that's what I want to leave your listeners with. Don't, don't do living like a resident for two to three, five years after your graduate. It's very easy to say, and some people can do it, but just don't be a dumbass and just try to involve your, your spouse in your decision-making processes, but invest in your kid's future, invest in your real estate being the one you live in. And eventually things will kind of stabilize out and hopefully uh, things will get better. That is great advice, Brian. That was awesome. Well okay. done. So uh, before I let you go, where can everyone find you? I know, I know we have the, the craniospinal of LA. Um, yes. Where can people find you on socials, all that? Shout it so out. My handle is at CSCLA. That's uh, Charlie, Sam, Charlie, Lima, Alpha, CSCLA. Uh, you can definitely find me there. On, I'm on I'm on X, Twitter, whatever. Uh, LinkedIn as me. And on Instagram, I'm at CSCLA. And obviously, uh, if people want to visit the site, it's craniospinalcenter.com. It's C-R-A-N-I-O, spinal, one word, center, still one word, dot com. Love it. Well, I appreciate you taking some time out of your, your day to, to hang out with me. It was a great conversation. You're super smart. Next time I'm out in LA, uh, we're going to go grab a, an adult beverage together. Sure. Whiskey's on me. You love it. Good talking to you. All right. Hey, everyone. As we wrap up today's episode, I want to talk about the second opinion. As most of our listeners are physicians, you guys know the importance of having another medical professional's insight for a patient's treatment plan. But have you ever considered having a second opinion on your financial plan? Or have you simply trusted your financial advisor that they've already leveraged every strategy that your family needs to be 100% on track to meet your financial goals? That's why for my Doctors and Dollars listeners, each Wednesday, I block off three time slots, an hour each, to provide a free second opinion of their financial plan. During this hour, we'll reevaluate your financial goals and your risk tolerance, we'll ensure tax mitigation strategies are in place, and ultimately give you confidence with your financial outlook because that is what drives a happy home, a happy marriage, and peace of mind. These three spots each Wednesday do fill up fast. Send me an email at nate at grandvision.co or head over to www.grandvision.co backslash second opinion to fill out a quick form about you and schedule a time for us to meet. 
Thanks for tuning in, and I hope the rest of your week is abundant. Cheers.